0: to show the love of Christ to other people. In John chapter 4, we read, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another we would like to say may your heart know him, enjoy him, and love him always. And may the new year be for you and your family and for our church, a year full of grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning I would like to ask you to turn your attention to another greeting that could be easily adopted or as a Christmas greeting. However, this Christmas greeting is to all local churches that hold up the name of Jesus Christ. And it is from a very special person, John the Apostle, a servant of Jesus Christ. Before we turn there and consider that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Our God and Father, as we come before you this morning, we come to a portion of your word that is difficult, and yet it's a portion of your word that holds up before us the triune God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that today you would help us to lay hold of this beautiful portion of Scripture to see how it can indeed impact our lives and our homes and our church at this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we briefly reflected on the Christmas carols in which we sing about realities that have not yet been realized. In other words, they are true, but they have not yet come to pass. In contrast, many songs that are associated with the Christmas season and which are fun to sing seem to revel in fantasy rather than reality. You know those hymns or those songs. Deck the halls with boughs of holly, jingle bells, white Christmas, Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, Santa Claus is coming to town, Frosty the snowman. True Christmas carols help highlight the realities and the circumstances surrounding the Christmas story itself. The little town of Bethlehem, the manger, Mary's lap upon which the baby was sleeping, the baby Jesus. The shining star, the angels singing, the shepherds in their fields by night. The night itself of Jesus' birth. However, the best Christmas carols, the best Christmas carols, and you can go through your hymnal and look at them, go on to tell us much more about the person of the baby that was laying in the lap of Mary after the birth that night. The best Christmas carols tell us more about Jesus, about who he was, and what he would do. As I've shared before, my favorite Christmas carol is Hark, the herald angels sing. And it's for that reason, because it so clearly speaks about the person of Christ, our Savior, that I get all charged up about it whenever I sing it and hear it. Listen to these words again, written by Charles Wesley, a true man of God, a theologian. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. The second stanza, Christ by he- he- highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. All these big words taken right out of the Scriptures and put there right before us. Hail the heavenly Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. Mild He lays His glory by, born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, Born to give them second birth. Christmas is not about the manger or about the town of Bethlehem. It's about the person who was born in Bethlehem and who was laid in a manger, the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is not on earth to hold up stories and ideals we cherish as mankind. It was put here to hold up the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas in the Bible. And you might say the Bible itself is not an owner's manual on how to live more prosperous lives. It's a book about God and His Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in keeping with that, the last book of the Bible is not a book on revealing how to hit our bets on the future. It is a letter to God's servants revealing the glorious person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me again at the opening chapter in the book of Revelation as we begin our journey through this book and the last book of the Bible, which is extremely important, and which promises to us who read it, who hear it, and who keep it, great blessing. Now, remember, in chapter 3, we were promised happiness if we got a hold of it, if we took it to heart. So let's begin by hearing and and working to understand the opening words of this revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 to 8. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you in peace from God, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us and who washed us from our sins in His blood and has made us a kingdom of priests to God and His Father, to Him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. The one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming, the Almighty. Now, as you can probably sense, the first and the biggest hurdle to hearing this passage and then applying it to our lives is understanding what it means. So I would like for you to permit me this morning to walk you and I, through this passage, explaining what it means, and then we will briefly consider how it would relate to us today. John chapter, chapter 1, verse 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now, we may never have thought about it before, but the book of Revelation was actually a personal letter from John the Apostle to seven churches that John knew very well and in which he probably personally ministered. And we know for sure that he was ministering and was very involved in the church at Ephesus. And the other six churches fan out in a rough circle around the church at Ephesus. Let me uh, get the map up there for you and we'll just uh, take a look at that. The church at Ephesus... Where's this trigger here that I'm supposed to have? Oh, there we go. Okay, the church of Ephesus is right there. All these are churches here, but he selected, obviously, because it would fit what would become representative churches of all churches. Here's Ephesus, and then there's Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all the way around, and a number of other churches that were established in the area. This is Turkey, and I think we're mostly familiar with that. It was called Asia Minor in that day or uh, at at some point in in the day of the Bible, was called Asia. And so that's where he was referring to. The bottom line is that John is not just writing to the congregation of these seven churches. He is writing to all churches. You see, the the congregations of these seven churches had some very peculiar problems. And they were faced with a lot of troubles. And there were personal failures, spiritual failures, I should say, in those churches. John was writing what we call the book of Revelation to all local congregations, church congregations, including Coast Bible Church, by the way. Because these seven churches represent all of us. They represent all of us. Furthermore, remember that in verse 3, John promised blessing or happiness to anyone who heard, who understood, and who took to heart what he wrote in this book. However, these seven churches, which roughly represent all churches, were facing serious problems, and most of the people who made up these congregations were not, for the most part, experiencing that happiness. They were not experiencing that blessing, that joy, that inner peace that John hoped that they would experience. So John, as he greets these seven churches, and through them, all churches, turns their attention to what will ultimately be needed to help them deal with their problems and to overcome their troubles and their spiritual failures, grace and peace leading to the kind of happiness that God values. John, to the seven churches in Asia, figuratively to all churches in all places in all ages, grace to you and peace from God. Problems? troubles and spiritual failures in a local church as well as in our personal lives will require the outpouring of God's grace and peace. Grace is that unmerited favor of God blessing of God that is poured out without reserve on those that don't deserve it. Peace It's the absence of hostility and conflict in a local church or in our own personal inner lives. It is not something we as people can produce. We can't produce this grace or this peace. It's not like we can wave a magic wand over a situation and somehow, through our actions or our words, impart the grace and peace that John is speaking about. This is a grace and peace that comes from God. For many people, however, to hear someone like John say grace to you and peace from God is not much different for them than hearing Jiminy Cricket sing when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. Anything your heart desires will come to you. That's fantasy. John's not speaking about fantasy. When John greets the seven churches with the words, grace to you and peace from God, he immediately puts those words, grace to you and peace from God, in a context of substance. A context of substance, not wishful thinking. Grace and peace are rooted in spiritual realities that John himself had personally witnessed and experienced. Grace to you and peace from God. The one who is. The one who is. The one who truly exists. God is no imaginary star upon which we wish knowing better. God does exist. And the Bible makes it clear that only the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. If the world around us teaches us anything, friends, it teaches us that there is a creator. And it also teaches us that that creator is a personal God who delights in his creation and who purposes to communicate with the crown of his creative work, mankind. This is a fundamental assumption of all people who approach life with wisdom. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Furthermore, he says, grace to you and peace from God, the one who is and the one who was. As I indicated in your note sheet there, assuming you got that. Everybody get the note sheet? Okay. This is, and I don't want to get too technical, but it's sort of important to understanding what's happening here. This is what's called an imperfect tense. The word imperfect tense means an indefinite tense. In other words, it's usually translated in the past with the word was, but it doesn't really have a time reference. And it might be better just to translate it, the one who was, is, and always will be. That seems to be the idea that's brought out here. I believe John here is speaking about God's eternal existence. Not only does God exist, He has always existed. And He always will exist. He was at the beginning of history. And He will be at the end of history. The application seems plain enough. God is not just there for Coast Bible Church or for us personally today. He has been there. For our church and for us. And he will be there for us and for our church in the future. Why? Because he's eternal. Grace and peace are not on sale today. You know how those sales are that you gotta do it today, you gotta buy today or you lose out. Grace and peace are not on sale. You need them today and they'll be on sale tomorrow at the same price. They're given freely by a God who loves us dearly. And then he adds, grace to you and peace from God, the one who is, and the one who was, is, and always will be, and the one who is coming. The one who is coming. And again, I have indicated to you that this is a perfect tense. And the perfect tense has the idea of something that happens at a definite point of time, but then the results continue. And so what it's saying here is that he is coming at a certain point in time, and from that point on, his coming is going to make a difference that will actually be for eternity. John is saying grace to you and peace from God, who is coming to establish the kingdom of God on this earth. You remember what we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, one day when the kingdom of God comes to this earth, when God establishes the kingdom of God on this earth, then the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when the kingdom of God is established on earth, it will be a time of extraordinary outpouring of the grace of God and peace from God. Grace poured out upon all those who have believed in Messiah, Jesus Christ, granting them the freedom to enter into this kingdom because they believed in Him. But also grace poured out in an extraordinary way upon those who have served Messiah with their lives. And now in this kingdom they're going to be recognized and appreciated and rewarded, and blessed with opportunities beyond their imagination. And following this, there will be peace in this kingdom. There will be no hostility. There will be no conflict. There will be no trouble, no problems that afflict us. Like these seven representative churches, we're experiencing even as John wrote them. And we'll look at those in a future. When God establishes the kingdom on earth, the kingdom of God on earth, there will be peace, unending fellowship, and happiness. Obviously, John is speaking here of God the Father. But listen carefully, and this is a very difficult concept for me and for you both to get a hold of. It's hard for me to explain it because it's hard for me to understand. However, it's important for us to remember that God the Father, even as He's seated on His throne in heaven, and there are, there's, as you get into the book of Revelation, you find God seated on the throne, and it's speaking, obviously, of God the Father. But God the Father seated on His throne, in reality, represents the fullness of the triune God. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit and God the Son are three distinct persons who equally share in the divine character, the divine nature, and the divine glory that defines the throne of God in heaven. And although God the Father is the person of the Godhead identified with that throne, nevertheless, God the Holy Spirit and the Son of God are also present in the fullness of their deity that resides in that throne as well. It's important for us to remember that when Jesus came to this earth, he was the son of God, but in the fullness of his deity, he was still sharing in the glory that he had as God and did have as God and would always have as God at the throne of God. But he also came forth as the son of God, sharing the nature of God, And assume the nature of a man. And with that, he would make known the person of God. And that takes us to John's next vision. This is true of the Holy Spirit as well, which takes us to John's next phrase, which is one that's caused a lot of confusion, one that takes people by surprise. It says, grace to you and peace from God, and from the seven spirits which are before God's throne. What's he talking about here? Again, this vision of John, this, this statement that John makes from the seven spirits which are before his throne, is related to a vision that John had recorded in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Here's what we read in those chapters. Chapter 4, verse 5, we read, And from the throne of God proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Chapter 5, verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What's he talking about here? Obviously, I think that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And although John's vision and reference to the Holy Spirit as being in the form of seven spirits is tough for us to get a handle on, it is not unusual if you consider other references to the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Let me just share a couple of others with you. Here's Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It's speaking about Messiah who will come. But it's also speaking about the Holy Spirit that would be upon him. But notice how the Holy Spirit is described. Verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's the reference to Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. If you couple those six couplets With the Spirit of the Lord, at the beginning, you have seven spirits. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 to 12. I'm just reading a glimpse of it. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to seven lamps. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Sounds like you and I right now. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He continues in verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then in thinking about this, most of you know that I've been teaching a class on, uh, or teaching a Bible study on the book of Acts. And you come in the book of Acts, which is chapter 2, is the start of the church on the day of Pentecost. And the thing that marked the start of the church is of course what's called in the Bible the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls upon the 120 plus people that were there in that room. And what happens when he falls upon them? And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's like the Holy Spirit manifesting Himself as a flame of fire comes down and then the flames spread out and alight on each one of them. In other words, their tongues would be ablaze with the praises of God in languages that they've never learned. Obviously, the Spirit of God was upon each one of them. It's not unusual to, to... Think of the Holy Spirit as dividing himself in the sense of manifesting himself in the nature of God in many ways. When John speaks about the seven seers before the throne of God, we must remember the seven is the number of completion or perfection, just like the seven churches are seven because it indicates a completion there that This is really a representative seven churches speaking to all local churches in all places in all times. Well, likewise with the Spirit of God here. The seven spirits are representative of the manifestations, the ministries of the Holy Spirit Himself who manifests the nature and character of God. When He went forth from the the throne of God into the very presence of God, He was there in the sense of bringing forth a manifestation of the nature of God and the character of God. Likewise, he has also gone forth into the world to bring to light or to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's at work in the world and people's lives all at the same time, dividing himself, if you will, among all the people of the world and who he's working at, even at this very moment, maybe even in this auditorium. Because He's spirit and not localized in a body. He can be in my body and in your body indwelling us as believers at this very moment. Manifesting in us as believers the grace of God, the peace of God, the power of God, not to mention the wisdom of God and the ways of God and the truth of God and the love of God. That's how He works in us. And that's why when John writes... Grace to you and peace from God and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. It's because the seven spirits representing the manifestations or work of the Spirit of God in bringing to light the character and nature of God, not only before the throne, but in our lives and in our church as well and in all churches that bear the name of Christ. Therefore, it's quite appropriate for John to write to local churches and say, grace to you and peace from God and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. But then he adds something else, a third thing. Grace to you and peace from God and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, To Him who loved us and who washed us from our sins in His blood and has made us kingdom of priests to God and His Father, to Him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Grace to you and peace from God, from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ. As the Son of God, Jesus shares equally in the glory of the triune God seated on the throne of God in heaven. But almost 2,000 years ago, on the first Christmas, in keeping with the will of God, he went forth from the glorious position that he had in heaven to be born into this world, receiving the name Jesus, becoming the unique person, fully God and fully man. Furthermore, he was the Christ. The Messiah, the one who had come from the throne of God on a mission. He was the coming one, the one who had come to do three things. First, he came as the faithful witness. What's that speak of? What did he witness about? He came to witness about God. He came to reveal God, to make God known. Most of us have no ability... To really understand the deep things of God. None of us do, really. But Jesus makes God embraceable. He makes God known. You want to know God? Look at Jesus. Because He witnesses to God. When it says that Jesus was full of grace and truth, that's because God is full of grace and truth. And therefore, John can write, Grace to you and peace from Jesus Christ. Second, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And when John writes that he was the firstborn from the dead, it was clear that he had accomplished what he set out to do. When he arose from the dead and he declared him to be that resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. And it declared that his sacrifice, because he was the Son of God and the Son of Man, was sufficient to remove sin, not just for a short time, but forever, because he is an eternal person. Furthermore, when John refers to him as the firstborn from the dead, it speaks of the full success of his mission. Because he's the firstborn, it implies more will be born. And that's you and I. Because He died for our sins and He has saved us eternally. He's given us eternal life. And He says, if you have believed in Me, though you should die physically, yet you shall live. We will be born again from the dead as well. A second time, if you will. Thirdly, He will come to establish God's God's kingdom upon this earth. We were reading about the fact that God is going to establish the kingdom, but the way he's going to establish it is through his son who will come to this earth and reign over the nations of this earth and over the kings of this earth. Currently, Jesus is in his humanity, in his humanity, is seated at the right hand of God in heaven, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. He is, as John writes, the ruler of the kings of the earth. It is a reality that is waiting to be experienced, as we saw last week. John, to the seven representative churches of all local congregations who hold up the name of Jesus, grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus Christ. How does Jesus figure into John's greeting of grace and peace? Grace and peace is really behind what he came to do. Notice the next verse, the next phrase. To him who loved us and washed us and who washed us. I know I pronounce that with a Midwestern accent, but live through it. I can't get the R out of it. To him who loved us and who washed us from our sins in his blood. This is what Paul calls the gospel of the grace of God. Listen to, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Why did He do this? Grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. That's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Why does He save people today? Grace. Grace. Why did he die for you and I? Grace. Why does he simply only require us to believe in Jesus in order to have life eternal? Grace. That's what. Grace is what was motivating him. Furthermore, and peace, by the way, because it's because of his grace that we have peace with God and peace with one another. Grace and peace is also... Before what he is doing today. You say, what's he doing today? Notice verse six. And he has and has made us a kingdom, a priest, to God and his father. A kingdom, a priest? What are you talking about? This is strange verbiage. Not familiar with this. A kingdom of priest. You mean we're like, you know, making offerings and things? Sacrifices? A priest was someone, according to the book of Hebrews, who represented man before God. And on earth today, God has called out a whole kingdom of priests. And they aren't wearing collars that are backwards. And I don't mean that as any offense to those that do. Because we could all wear that collar backwards. Because we're all priests. We're preached in the sense that we are called upon to represent each other and people all around us before God in heaven. We have this awesome privilege that Jesus is providing for us and has, or has provided for us and is encouraging us to take part of, of bringing before His Father in heaven the needs of one another. Notice what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, chapter 2. Therefore laying aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, which we're all guilty of, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. It's all based in grace. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light who, and who once were not a people but now are the people of God and who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Grace, grace, grace. And what he's doing in our lives today and what he's called us to do. And the ministry that we have as believer priests for one another and for our church and for others and for other churches is a ministry that's born out of grace. And it brings peace. Grace and peace is also the end of what he's going to do tomorrow. Notice the next phrase. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen means so be it. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. Let it be. So let it be. And then the very last verse of Revelation, what it is, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So let it be. In the letter of Revelation, which is looking at the things that are, the things that have been, and the things that will be, mostly the things that will be, chapter after chapter has been leading to the highlighting, leading and highlighting the establishment of Messiah's kingdom on earth. The last verse to the congregations of these seven churches that are representative of all local congregations around the world and in all ages. The last verse, after taking and walking this, this, these seven churches through all of this prophecy, what we call prophecy, and all these things about the future and about the establishment of God's kingdom, about reigning with Christ, that all Christians will have a part of that kingdom. He's saying... Grace. Keep this grace before you. It was all of grace. It's happened. What will happen tomorrow is happening because of God's grace. He did not have to move and accomplish these things on this earth. He did it because of his grace. He he will do it, I should say, because of his grace. Because from us it's still future. Even though from God's perspective it's as good as happened. And he says in the very last verse of the book, keep this grace before you. Keep it before you. Is there anything that can prevent Jesus from establishing his kingdom or righteousness? A kingdom marked by grace and peace on this earth? No. Isn't there anyone powerful enough that can stand in his way? No. Notice how this portion of Scripture concludes in verse 8. We come back to God who represents the Father, who represents the Holy Spirit and the Son of God. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. The one who is, the one who was, is, and always will be, and the one who is coming, the Almighty, the Almighty. I hear people refer to the Almighty, well, the Almighty is guaranteeing that this gracious outpouring of future love and establishing a kingdom in which we shall reign as servants and priests and kings and in which all who have believed in Jesus Christ shall be privileged to enter into this kingdom, it will be established. It's a work of grace. And it brings peace. What's the point of all this on a practical level? And I don't, I don't like to distinguish between the two because I, I got a lot out of this. In fact, <clears throat> grace and peace is not something, what I've learned the most is grace and peace is not something we can produce by sending the right Christmas card or the right thoughtful get well card. It's not something we can bring about with some nice words, Or something nice we do for people. Grace and peace are not something we can manufacture in our own strength. You say, what's that got to do with things? The grace and peace we need in our lives is something that only God can bring about. Grace, that unmerited favor of God poured out on a life that's undeserving. And peace, the absence of hostility and conflict, is only something God can truly bring about. Many have asked me over the years, let me take a drink here, I'm having a problem. I've been asked over the years, when you study the Bible, how does it speak to you personally? And a lot of times what I share with you obviously is directed at me as well. But there are times in which I get things out of the scripture and I think, well, this is something I'm really I'm really getting a lot out of this, but I don't know that the church will. And I'll take another tact. And, in fact, I was planning on concluding this message in a different way. But God sort of put it on my heart to share with you what I was getting out of this as I read it and as I thought about it. I've been a pastor for over 30 years. I can tell you my strengths and weaknesses probably better than you can. And there's one big weakness I have labored with for most of those years, a weakness that goes all the way back into my childhood. And you're thinking, oh, boy, we're going to get a goody here. When I was a child, the one thing that bothered me most when, was when people in my life, primarily my parents and my, my family and my, my close friends, when they were unhappy or troubled by something, that really bothered me. And I can recall when I was just a little child, some of the conversations that I had with my mother and with my dad to some extent were born out of this this situation in which I would see my mom come in the door and she'd be angry. And I'd say, what's wrong? Nothing. And I said, now I can tell there's something wrong. Just mind your own business. And i keep pressing. I wouldn't let it drop. Finally, she just dumped it all out on me. And then I proceeded to solve her problems. That became sort of a way of dealing with things. I just always felt that there was this this inner, and maybe it goes along with the pastoral gift that God's given me, but it can be used in the wrong way. That desire to help people, but to help solve their problems. A little bit of the messianic complex that sometimes you get, and you think, I can handle that. I can say the right words. I can figure out a way that I can just make everything right for this person and it'll all go away, their problems will be over, and they'll be happy again. I do it with my mom, my dad, my friends. When I got into college, developed a number of friendships, I do it there. I sort of thought of myself as a problem solver. And then after I became a pastor, I mean, that's like fertile field for problem solvers. I mean, I was in hog's heaven, as they say. People have problems. And the minute I had sensed that somebody was having a problem, go try and help them out. But instead of offering them counsel and, and advice and letting it go, you keep working at it. I can solve this problem. I can figure out how to make this all go go away. I developed the arrogant idea that I could solve people's problems and help them over their hurts and pains by saying and doing gracious things. With the end result that peace would come in their lives. And if the problem or trouble was with me, I simply accept the blame. Blame me, my shoulders are broad. Presto, everybody would be okay, and there would be peace. The reason that I never completely grew out of this and why I've always struggled with it is this prideful behavior is what I call it. And, you know, there's a flip side, a caring side that is good. was because in many instances it did seem to work. If a secretary was upset, I would pry until I found out what she was upset about and then I'd fix it. And usually it worked. If a leader or a church worker was discouraged, I would find out immediately what the problem was. And then I would go hunt them down. And I would try to remove whatever it was that was discouraging them. If a staff member walked out of a meeting, I'd go chase after them and find out what it is that upset them that I said. And then I'd apologize get them back in the meeting. And I'm telling you this because there is a fundamental weakness in this way of doing things. First, solving people's problems and dealing with their troubles in most cases only provided temporary relief. The problems and troubles in most cases returned. And sometimes with a vengeance. In some cases, I had ultimately made the situation worse. Second, this takes a lot of emotional stress and drain on you. And it interferes with some of the things that you should be doing to help people in terms of giving, them for, giving forth the Word of God. It can rob you of joy and happiness because you're unhappy because others are unhappy. And then lastly, and slowly I've learned this lesson and it's been a hard lesson to learn, Is that I've learned that I cannot impart grace to anyone that can engender happiness and inner peace. What I can do is impart God's grace revealed in His Word. I can give people biblical counsel in the face of their problems, I can comfort them with biblical truth in the midst of trouble. But only God can show them grace because grace is God's deal. It's his unmerited favor toward those that do not deserve it. And only God is totally innocent and totally holy and totally pure and totally good. And when he gives grace, there's no strings attached, there's no evil underpinnings, there's no pride. He's doing it because he simply loves us. Furthermore, only God can bring about peace. Only God can bring peace in a life. The things that we find peace in, and we talk about it in the world peace, you know, and you think, yeah, right. We may have, you know, maybe, maybe we aren't pushing the button and blowing each other up with atomic weapons, but the hatred and the hostility never goes away. It's there all the time in the world. And it's there in the lives of people around us in the world. And it's there in our lives as well at times and in our church at times. And only God can bring peace. I can't do that. And that's a hard lesson. You think you can, but you can't. Friends, there are only three persons I know of whose grace can lead to peace and happiness. God the Father, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Holy Spirit, who manifests Himself in the sevenfold spirits of God, and the Holy in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, was, and always will be, full of grace and truth. There is no other, no other way, to get real help. I beg of you. Think about this: sixteen books, and if you if you omit the Four Gospels in the book of Acts, off of the 27 books in the New Testament, that's 22 books. So 16 out of 22 books that were written to churches, letters, if you will, to churches, 16 of them begin with the words, or words similar to this, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that most of them end with the words, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now that ought to say something to us, friends. We desperately need His grace if we're going to find peace. Nobody else. We can't go to anyone else and expect them to fix our problem or to somehow be removed and solve our problem. Only He can solve the problem. Only he can be the one to work, help us work through our problems, our troubles, our difficulties. Are you facing some serious problems? Do you have some troubles that seem impossible to deal with? What can I say? I could probably say, well, come talk to me and I'll help you solve your problem. But it won't be satisfying help. I mean, I'll help you, give you counsel from God's word, but I need to withdraw from being the problem solver because only God solves problems. Only God deals with people's needs. And I have found out over and over again that my solutions are just so pathetic compared to His solutions. I can't fix it, I can't solve it. It's there. And only arrogance keeps talking like that. What is it that we can say as pastors, as church leaders, as Christians, to others that are around us? Here's what we can say. Grace to you and peace from God, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is coming. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Grace to you and peace. Our Father, help us to take to heart.